Welcome to the Lighting Your Way podcast. I'm your host, Guardian Nurses founder, Betty Long. During season three, we'll be delving in deeper to the amazing lives and stories of nurses and other healthcare professionals from around the country. We'll also be talking with a few of my nurse advocate colleagues at Guardian Nurses. You'll get a behind the scenes peek at the healthcare system, as well as get advice on how to get the best care when you or a loved one is a patient. We close out our celebration of Nurses Month with a conversation with Jane Felgen, the founder in 1989 of the Nightingale Awards of Pennsylvania, an organization whose mission is to celebrate nursing excellence and to recognize and support nursing scholarship. 33 years later, Nightingale continues that mission across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Jane's career spanned five decades, and even now, as she just retired last month, you can hear the passion in her voice when she talks about nursing. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Jane Felgen, welcome to the Lighting Your Way podcast. Uh, it is it is wonderful uh, to close out our third season with your conversation. Thank you, Betty. I am delighted to be here. <laughs> Yeah, I as we have uh, done in the month of May, we've been uh, interviewing and talking with uh, nurses who who I consider legends of nursing, all of whom have at least forty years of experience. I I'm going to guess you might tell me you have more than that, but um, so this is our our legend series. So congratulations uh, on being included in that auspicious group. Thank you so very much. Yes, many more than forty. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, you're gonna you're gonna keep me in suspense, or you're gonna tell me now? In 1965. Wow. Wow. Okay. So. Five was our class motto. What was your class motto? <laughs> Survive till sixty-five. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've clearly gone beyond that. I think. Ten years later. <laughs> wow. And loving it. Well, congratulations! And and um, you know, I, I think when we had the we had a Nightingale dinner, um, and that's how you and I know each other. We had a Nightingale dinner in Pittsburgh, and um, you know, I asked the crowd who who in the crowd had forty five years, you know, forty six, and somebody had fifty one years, and she was still working. Now I I I, <laughs> I was like, uh oh. There's no hope for me, right? Um, all right, so Jane, let's let's go walk down memory lane, okay? Um, as we've started with many of our guests uh, who are considered legends, and uh, I've asked about your childhood and how you got, uh, you know, where where you got started, where you were born, um, what did your parents do? Just paint me a picture of what the early life of Jane looked like. Absolutely. So I was born in the '40s in a small town of about twenty thousand in western central Ohio. I'm a Buckeye fan still. Okay. And um, my mother was a homemaker. I was the oldest of five. And my dad and his single older sister and brother inherited my grandfather's um, bottling pop business in 1948. So I grew up with a pop plant right out my back door at the <laughs> backyard. And I, I want to make sure we said pop, P-O-P, as in soda, not P-O-T. <laughs> and, and that soda versus pop dilemma, I always frame it like this. My dad owned and operated the company, and he called it pop. So pop it is for me. <laughs> okay. So that was, uh, was it any particular soda or pop? Was it uh, Pepsi or Coke? Is at the at the south end of my hometown is this huge railroad um, bridge, and they called it Gateway. And so Gateway Beverages, and they had their own brands of lemon and lime and orange and cream soda, cola, grape, et cetera. But okay. we also franchised for Frosty Root Beer and <laughs> Sundrop. And also, previous to that, was Grapeette and Lemonette. Wow. In okay. Six bottles. So, yeah, um, I am older than dirt. So most of the people <laughs> listening 
<laughs> will not know. <laughs> are, are they? Is the plant still in, in uh, action? Is it still working? No. In the early seventies, um, the big conversation was: Would the family and my elderly aunt and uncle were not interested in investing in changing from glass bottles to aluminum cans, uh-huh. and so they closed the business in the early 70s. Oh, wow. That was about the time when things changed. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, The only way I can lock in that change, of course, everything now is mostly cans, but we're getting back to bottles again. Correct. Correct. I think, uh, yeah, bottles, we're certainly trying to get away from plastic as it's done quite a number on our environment. Um, All right. So let me shift gears on you. So you became a nurse, uh, graduated in 65. But what was the early inspiration for you uh, to go into nursing? What, was someone in your family a nurse? How did, how did you come to that decision? My, um, I was very close to one of my, well, to all of my mother's brothers, um, my uncles. But um, my uncle Tom married a nurse, Aunt Norma. And so she was a big part of my life in the my five, six, seven-year-old period of my life. But when I was nine, I would say that the decision point for me was solidified. After the age of nine, I, I never wavered. My grandmother, with whom I was very close, it was my mother's mom, and she had had some cardiac issues and really was so debilitated she had to be at home most of the time, and I spent a lot of time with her. And when I was nine, she got very ill and was hospitalized. And the story that I heard, my mother and none of the other siblings were allowed in to say goodbye to my grandmother, who was so desperately ill. The only one allowed in was my Aunt Norma, the daughter-in-law nurse. As oh nine, wow! I was, oh. I was devastated, but I had to watch my mother's anguish, and I thought, you know what, I, this is wrong. I've got to go be a nurse and change that. Wow! <laughs> never look back. Never have I looked back. Wow! At nine. Wow. Nine. Right. That, wow! And and what a impactful moment for you not not just you know to to decide your career but to lose your grandmother yeah and it's it's blessing throughout my career actually because i've learned upon reflection it was not intentional as you might imagine going into it but being with people at end of life has always been a gift i've been able to give Mm -hmm. um quite um, I've been drawn to it, and I'm sure that's been shaped by that loss and sure. the manner of that loss and the helplessness, um, the exclusion of it all. So um, fast wow. forward, COVID days, I really could relate to people's anguish at not being present at the moments their loved ones passed. Right, right. Yeah, that, that that was. I mean, had a long and probably are still having some of those moments as I think um, visiting visiting um, restrictions are coming back a little bit now as we talk uh, in May of 2022. Um, so did did your aunt uh, the the nurse? So just tell me a little bit about that. She came. So she said goodbye to your grandmom, to her mom, right? Or no, she that was the mother in law. Her mother in law. Right. Um, but nobody got to say goodbye. That's, yeah, I'm sorry about that. That's sad. Well, it's the sign of the times, you know, things were a lot different. And in fact, they were not even, my family was thinking I was too young to go to the viewing and, um, they were not going to allow me and I raised Holy H and they finally allowed me to, and I'm so grateful for that. But wow. I was not allowed to go to the funeral. How old, do you remember how old your grandmom was? 
Very oh, young. gosh. Oh, wow. 59. Too wow. Young. Oh, yeah. Wow. It was after her third heart attack, so. Okay. Well, all right. So so you've become a nurse. Looking back on it now, I, I will ask you, have, in your career, uh, you said you wanted to become a nurse. You're going to change that. Have you had that impact uh, in your career to change mm-hmm. visiting? <laughs> You you bet. At any hospital where I work, visiting hours were between <laughs> the patient and me. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's, and structurally, um, as a consultant later, um, the infrastructures that are changed to align with values like the importance of family and what's important to the patient has absolutely been a driver. That episode, I am sure, shaped me in ways that I'll be still unpacking years from now. <laughs> well, did, um, on behalf impact. of all the on behalf of all the families that you've impacted, because of that um, story that you have, right? Good for you, because I think uh, you know we at Guardian Nurses we hear a lot of stories where families even before COVID and after the pandemic shutdown that they haven't had the right, like there's two to a, only two to it per day. And it's, it's hard because we're used to seeing folks. And even though it's, you could video or FaceTime, it's not the same. Um, so good for you for doing that. I think more hospitals, it's sometimes it's about the convenience of the staff, um, not necessarily about the patient, sadly. That's been my experience for all 57 years. And <laughs> I have to you that there are nurses and there are organizations who truly value the professional practice of the nurse and their commitment to the patient and creating plans that are most therapeutic. So the workarounds have existed right. for a very long time time. And thankfully, in recent decades, there has been an overt shift to be more open-minded and truly be patient-focused. Yes. um, Yeah. So I I think the systems are becoming more responsive, but there's a long way to go. That's another story, another day. Okay. (laughs) Promise. Promise. Okay. Um, so, Jane, like a lot of our uh, other nurses that we've talked with in this month of May, all of you have pursued at what I think is ahead of your time was a BSN. Um, and I think that is on some level telling uh, of the success that all you had early on in your careers that you got a, you know, a bachelor's. You went to Hopkins. Is that right? Yeah. And I'm a bit of an anomaly there. Um, Betty, because my guidance counselor pleaded with me to go to a four-year program to Ohio okay. State in okay. particular. But my mother had already, after my sophomore year in high school, as I said, I was hell-bent for election. I was going to be a nurse, period. <laughs> okay. so, and in the college prep, I was absolutely going to go to school after high school. She reached out to both Johns Hopkins and Mass General. So um, high aspirations here. And they were both diploma programs at the time, but both obviously clinically the best in the country. And between my junior and senior year in high school, I had taken the NLN entrance exams and then my family, the only family vacation in the summer ever, we went to Baltimore for my interview. And (laughs) we walked through this ancient building, right, built 1890s. And um, my mother went inside with me and my dad stayed out with the other kids. And we walked through this ancient building. And all the while, every step, I'm walking, looking around, thinking, Oh, these honored halls just to be walking down the hallway. 
And my mother, we walk out and she said, well, I guess that's a no-brainer. We'll, we'll keep looking. And I stopped dead and looked at her and I said, no, we're going to stop looking. I am saying, yes, this is where I want to go. <laughs> Why? Was, what? What? What did it? What attracted you? Despite the, you know, the age and the, the history well, it of was it was the age. It, it okay. was the age. Um, it, it was the historical precedent of it, and the story of Hopkins is rather unique as it relates to nursing, because they felt they were partners. These physicians. It was the first medical school that had the medical training at the bedside. They even had their labs at the bedside. Uh The classrooms were adjacent to the clinical units. And the nurse faculty and the physician faculty were partners in this. And of heavyweight, Sir William Osler. I mean, I was just um, enamored with the history um, and the model of care. Wow. And I, it was a good decision, I'll tell you. You, you were ahead of your time for, for <laughs> and, well, and I, do, your, do your brothers and, and sisters give you a hard time about that vacation? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it only took out one afternoon, but, <laughs> but interestingly, um, Mr. Lighty, my senior counselor in high school, he just tried ever so hard. He said, Jane, your college material. And I'm like, yes, and this is Johns Hopkins, the Johns Hopkins. And of course, the postscript on that was after I graduated and wanted to go on and get my bachelor's at Penn State, they were insisting at that time I had to go to Allegheny and Pittsburgh and repeat my clinical. Oh, at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, and the expectation was I would repeat my clinical. And I'm like, no, that's not happening. So I commuted for 10 years to Hopkins from my place of employment and where I lived in South Central Pennsylvania for 10 years to get my bachelor's, took off one year, and then went back and got my master's. Wow. I would tell you um, that we were, um, how do I say this kindly? The times were very different, very narrow-minded, and just beginning to evolve. But I, I would never have sacrificed the three years of clinical that I had because the, the major theme at Hopkins was, if you're a nurse, you're a leader, period. Mm. You okay. have an honored place in people's lives, and you are an honored, trusted, and respected professional on the team. You are the leader of the team, including the physicians who are partners that come in periodically. Wow. Well, wow, that that seems to be uh, quite ahead of its time. It, well, it's I don't even think it's still considered that nurses are not considered leaders uh, of the team, at, at least from a physician standpoint. Some facilities do, but uh, so Hopkins was well ahead of its time. It was an anomaly. Um, my yeah. experience was an anomaly. I grew up believing physicians were my partners. Well, so you come out of Hopkins and, you know, from a, a from a really positive environment for nursing. Where do you end up uh, in your first job? <laughs> my my husband, uh, who was an x-ray tech at the time, lived in Hanover, Pennsylvania, um, about an, an hour, a little more than an hour north of Baltimore. So the big question was, were we going to move back to Sydney in Ohio with my family or to Hanover with his? And he won. And I moved to Hanover. And upon graduation, I was so conflicted because I was torn in three different directions clinically. I, I wanted community health. I loved my public health experience. I wanted behavioral health because I loved my mental health experience. And I wanted the OR. I loved it. Now, how <laughs> different are those three? Yeah. And so yeah. then there was 
reality that I was moving to a 200-bed hospital in South Central Pennsylvania. There were none of those positions open. I <laughs> ended up in med surge, but two years later was selected um, to design, train for, and open one of the first coronary care units in the country. And two years later, one of the, it was one of eight mobile coronary care units in the country from wow. Little Hampton, Pennsylvania. Yeah, so, what, that's the mo, a mobile coronary care? Tell me about absolutely. that. Um, our, another one of my mentors, Dr. Neil Bathon, was the medical director. He believed him out of the University of Maryland. And it, at the time, it was you knew you could prevent deaths from MIs if you could manage the arrhythmias. So that was the impetus. You have to remember, back in those days, there were no ICUs. At Johns Hopkins, there was not an ICU in 1965. Your what? entire world was, was an ICU. Oh, <laughs> but, wow. So. Thanks. Then ICUs came into existence, and he felt there needed to be one specific for coronaries because upwards of three-fourths of patients who died died from arrhythmias. And if you could monitor that and treat that, you could save lives. And so then we did that, and two years later, it became apparent that the quicker you got to them, the more likely um, they would survive. So he leveraged conversations with the leaders of Hanover, Pennsylvania, and they negotiated with the fire company, um, one of the civic philanthropy um, folks in the town contributed the money for this ambulance, special equipped ambulance. And the city donated the time of their firefighters who had special training. So if I'm, this was pre-911, but when, when a 911 call would come in, it would go to the fire company and they would dispatch, it was two miles from the hospital, they would dispatch the firemen in the ambulance as they called the hospital wow. On the fourth floor, we would grab the black bag, head downstairs out the ED, and off we would go together. The driver, who was specially trained, and me or my colleagues, um, the nurse, and we would go out into the community and help save them before they wow. even the hospital. 1969. Wow. Wow. It's, you know, you would think about it. now we have AEDs all over, you know, uh, community centers, you know, airports. Wow. And that was, what, 60, 50 something years ago. Right? We've yeah. come a long way. Wow. Yeah. We had the 50th anniversary a couple of years ago. <laughs> Three wow. years. Wow. Jeez. So, so you, so you go to Little Hanover, as you say, and then is your journey through your career located in South Central? Like it's still in Pennsylvania. Tell me about your well, career path. That's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I have, I have lived in South Central Pennsylvania my entire adult life, but um, my journey went from Hanover General. I taught LPNs for five years still at Hanover General, and then I went to Gettysburg Hospital, first as staff development director and then as chief nurse before my husband and I moved to Lancaster, and I was able to work at all three of the city hospitals in Lancaster, and at the last one, I was the chief nurse, and um, that put me um, at a decision-making level right in the era when quality was coming about in the late 80s. Okay. And we started a board level quality um, program and we hired a consultant 
that was in competition with all of the big Arthur Andersons and the Pete Marwick, all of the accounting firms were the consultants to hospitals in those days. If you were a nurse, you got no consultants. You were expected to know everything about right. the clinical side, operational side. Only the finance department got extra resources externally. And you can just guess from my history so far, I, I balked at um, <laughs> a financial consultant coming in to tell us how we should reorganize our, or our hospital to focus on the patient. And Emmett Murphy was um, an innovator of his time, and we were successful in getting him in with two research tools, one that um, surveyed what quality was in the eyes of everyone, patients, families, doctors, board members, staff members, et cetera. And the other tool had to do with how do you spend your time in a week? And the two data points when collected and brought back create a picture of where your priorities are. Well, I did such a good job actually of <laughs> that, that he decided that he needed to start a consulting arm in his company um, and that he tried to recruit me to do that. And that happened at a time where I was looking to relocate from Lancaster back here to York County to be closer to my kids and now my grandkids. Oh. And that offered me an opportunity to not have to be 30 minutes away from the hospital in case of emergencies. So in 1997, I made that switch and um, became a consultant, which scared me to death. <laughs> Why? But <laughs> Why? Now, this this was another important uh, mentoring moment because I knew that my gift was um, being able to see externally from the hospital, take a look at the outside challenges. But my gift was being rooted, grounded at the point of service. I okay. knew operations. I knew the values of those who touched the patient. And my ability was to make those connections. My fear, if I became a consultant, was I'd be removed from operations uh, and I'd lose my relevance, my hmm. insight, and just be another talking head that blows in, blows off, and blows out. And <laughs> I had no respect for that. Um, and so he said to me, Jane, I want you to ponder this on the weekend, and I'll call you back on Monday. But he said, you need to know that not every church, chief nurse in this hospital and in this um, universe has their heart at the bedside as you do. So given that, I want you to acknowledge that, number one. But number two, if that's how you're hardwired, and you and I both know that's how you're hardwired, you will learn in whatever role you play how to ask the right questions to get at what you value most. Wow. That is, that is very good, very good advice. Powerful, powerful. So on Monday I said yes. Wow. Yeah, really? How could you not with that? He's either then, a great salesman or a great mentor. Yeah, well, he was both. But, you know, and the rest. <laughs> Uh, as Paul Harvey would say for those old timers listening, then there was the rest of the story. After two <laughs> to three years in that role, what I came to learn is that everybody wants data, 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 but they want it for different reasons. And the final straw for me was when this Midwestern system spent buku bucks to get us to come in help them gather the data. They insisted on benchmark data. And we gave them benchmark data, and then they danced around it and wanted to invalidate the benchmark because it wasn't them. They were so unique. Uh -huh. And the ah, neon lights went off for me, and I thought to myself, self, if they had spent half that money and just listened to their chief nurse, who knows exactly what's needed, 
they don't have the courage to do what's needed. What was ne the data reflected exactly what the nurse, the chief nurse already knew, oh. but the process was a part of getting them all on the same page and saying yes and moving forward together. And they didn't want to do it. They didn't have the courage. And that's when I became so unenthralled <laughs> with the courage of selective people in C-suites across the country who were in decision-making authoritative positions did not understand operations or what it was needed for those who did have the values to provide care, to invest appropriately. And so 25 years ago, another wow. mentor, Marie Manthe, um, and I was able to connect with her through this chief nurse at that healthcare system who connected me. And we agreed after a 45 minute call, I was going to join her team at Creative Healthcare Management, which was still is located in Minneapolis, but I was able to stay here in Pennsylvania and just go to clients around the country, around the world, where we serve them. And, so, and what was your role? I mean, you are clearly, and, and that's what I part of the things I love about you is that you are passionate about patients and patient care. And it does it it, it rings sad to me that you're saying that a lot of the C-suite don't have that same passion, uh, nor do they think of patients first. Uh, and in healthcare, that seems just unbelievable to me. But wh why do you think that we, st with healthcare, struggle so much? In your experience as a consultant, like when you work with other health systems, why? Why do why do we struggle with putting patients first and making a system that is focused on their care and their outcomes? I, I would say that I don't think it's a lack of their wanting to focus on the patient. I, okay. I think across the board, um, most people in the C-suites, that is what they think is what motivates them. I'll say in the 25 years as a consultant with Creative Healthcare Management, whose underpinnings are about professional practice and empowering nurses and later others to truly own their practice and to step into their own and be leaders as a professional. So you can see how and why Marie Manthe and Creative Healthcare Management was the right fit for me, having described back at Johns Hopkins um, right. the whole mindset. So. That insight that I now have about Marie and her company and myself helps also to explain why we have such fragmentation in healthcare. Because when healthcare began to become more sophisticated and more like a business, and they went towards business models with people who were not clinical, who were making these decisions and the focus is on the bottom line and efficiency with little or no understanding mm. about the clinical implications of their decisions. So they're handicapped. And if they oh. don't have humility to understand that they need to be inclusive and engage people and create empowering infrastructures, you know, then, then they spend as we do, billions of dollars putting in all of these incremental, individually positive programs like lean and systems redesign and service excellence and high reliability. They're all good programs, but they're not based upon reinforcing professional practice, <laughs> number one, and they're um, narrow in their implementation. It's always incremental, which adds to the fragmentation rather than decreasing it. So 
Yeah, I've been passionate about that. So that's kind of led me and why when I landed 25 years ago with Marie Manthe and Creative Healthcare Management, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. <laughs> and when I retired less than 60 days ago, I have to tell you, my heart is filled with nothing but gratitude. Who else gets to spend almost half of their career with an organization <laughs> whose mission is to transform healthcare in ways that best support the patient and the practitioners who provide the care. Yeah, I mean, not not many. Seriously, I am not, blessed. Well, and, and part of your response uh, uh, triggered in me that there should be, and I've always said this even when I was a rookie, uh, that Nurses should run hospitals. They shouldn't just be the chief nurse. There should be a CEO who's a nurse because and then perhaps. Or we've got that coming. That's more. Yeah. There are more CEOs who have had nursing background um, yeah. now than ever. But let me also say something about that. The other qualifier, not all nurses not all chief nurses understand professional practice. And that's another insight that my colleague Colleen Person and I, um, when we were preparing to write book, Relationship-Based Care, and when we individually and separately without consulting with each other, listed the top 10 success factors. And number one for both of us was, uh, organization that had a chief nurse who understood and valued professional practice wow. was the number one wow. for both of us, and that is still true. Wow. So just that's because some that's of the great. nurse does not mean they came up through the ranks with the same influences that reinforce professional practice, you know? Right. Nursing history, we had some years where we had some schizophrenia going on in the academic setting um, across the country. How does, what does respect look like? It was all about credentialing and then we treat them like interchangeable parts once we hire them. I mean, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> Jane, kinda I like crazy. the way you, I like the way you look at things. Really, I do. <laughs> I, I've always, I've always enjoyed your perspective on things, and this is no different. So, so well, thank, thank you, you for, for that. Um, all right, so I want to talk a little bit about the Nightingale Awards of Pennsylvania because that's how you and I met. Um, and you, I, I'm happy to say, were the uh, tra trailblazer who created that organization, what, 33 years ago? Yeah? Yep. And. Yep. Tell me why, what was the impetus, what was the motivation to do that? So, again, going back in history and time, around 1987, our professional national nurse leader organization called AONE at the time, American Organization of Nurse Execs, there were um, chapters in each state and at the state level, I was a member, but only the chief nurses were allowed to vote, if you can imagine that. And I was an assistant um, vice president at the time. And between right around that time, each state and the national organization decided that it really needed to branch out, decentralize, and within the state create regional chapters and also at the same time recruit membership from nurse managers and directors and assistant VPs, et cetera. So that was the context. We were in the midst of a huge nursing shortage. Pennsylvania was one of the worst hit we produced more RNs, but more than we produced were leaving the state to work elsewhere than were staying. Uh -huh. So the nursing was an issue. So with that as the backdrop, our professional journal, um, Journal of Nursing Administration, 
I was looking through it one day, and lo and behold, there was a half-page little article about the Colorado Awards of Nursing. And it was the University of Colorado School of Nursing that created an annual gala to honor nurses. And from that, they got big donors, cores, um, who subsidized it. And so they would showcase nurses and use that as a part of their recruitment to get more nurses into their school. And the monies left over from the gala were offered as scholarships. And I thought to myself, self, now that is a winning combo. So <laughs> I went to my South Central Organization of Nurse Exec colleagues, and I said, what do you think about this? And we thought it would be a grand idea. So we put it all together. We <laughs> mapped it out as if it were going to happen. And we took that plan to the president of the organization of nurse execs in Pennsylvania. It happened to be my boss and Linda Sugars. She thought it was a great idea, but she and the executive team said, you know, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to do this in one region only when you look at the resource um, required to organize it and pull it off. And we agreed, so we modified it to be statewide. Oh, okay. Then to her, and it first got endorsed by PONE, but because she was the chair and a part of the Hospital Association of Pennsylvania, she sat by virtue of that role on the HAP board with all of the other um, chapters within HAP. So that means finance, that meant the pharmaceuticals, um, that meant the healthcare attorneys. and. So we put together a plan for who we could market this idea to, to get endorsements, both within HAP and their societies, and also throughout the state. Every LPN program, every diploma program, every bachelor's program, every long-term care organization systems, um, there were 45 of them, and we put together that plan while still as chief nurse at Community Hospital of Lancaster in my spare time. I took this dog and pony show and met with all 45 of these organizations long before Zoom. This was all in person. 44 of the 45 absolutely 150% supported it, including the Healthcare Attorney Society. Their president at the time was Bill Humanick, and he wanted not only to support it, but offered free of charge to put together a not-for-profit package because he felt, unlike Colorado, whether it was where it was the under the auspices of one university, our vision was much broader and more inclusive to include anyone who has influence over a nurse and their education. And so he then became our first board member and treasurer. Oh. But the story of how that came about, we got so much support so spontaneously, we truly could have done it the year before. But okay. we felt that we also needed to grow the concept, and we recruited a board member who was expert at fundraising, and he put together the package to try to help us um, get some donations that we could create an endowment fund. That's the only piece that we were never successful at in those first few years. Okay. But that's you know, I took it to my colleagues, and yes, I appreciate um, the acknowledgement that it was my bright idea, and, and when I have a bright <laughs> idea, I follow it up with the nuts <laughs> and bolts, and, and, but 
everyone said yes. And they right. not only said yes, but they showed up. And they, many of them, as you know, from that 30th anniversary gala, yep. they're still involved in one way or another. Yep. This is yep. life work for us. Well, and, and to even now to think that we have uh, a board, probably I think of 23 um, all, nurses who all have different experiences and we are still, all of us are passionate about recognizing nursing excellence and celebrating nursing scholarship by awarding scholarships. So it it's a great one-two kind of mission, right? We want to have the gala uh, to raise money to then give the scholarships to the students in the spring. So um, congratulations, Jane. It's a great, uh, great organization, and I am certainly proud to be part of it. So uh, thanks to your idea, but I'm sure there was a lot of energy in in, in those early days, I'm sure. I'll tell you, 18 years, I can't, when I look back on it now, it's, um, it's mind-boggling even to me. But... Um, Two years before it came into being in the first gala and for 18 years later, um, fully employed and going to school and all of those things and presiding over this great, great organization with its amazing volunteers. And so I thank you and congratulate you because the ongoing leadership hasn't missed a beat. And in fact, you've been able to put in place things that I hope will sustain it for a long time to come. And we still have work to do with throughout the state to help people understand what an amazing and rewarding profession this is. And this organization has the infrastructure in place, but we still, still could benefit from other social media, TV exposure, um, some other way to make it more real and, and lived experience in every county in the state of Pennsylvania. Because it's going to take more <laughs> nurses from every one of them to take care of us. Well, that that's true. I let's not talk about taking care of us, but I certainly taking care of the organization. I think many of the, my friends who are older than me and who look at their next couple of years and fear entering the healthcare system that there won't be enough nurses and those that are there may be on their phones. So we don't <laughs> we don't know what's what the future is going to hold. So we have to do a good job of of recruiting. Um so so thank you for your leadership in that. I, I'm I'm tickled uh, that the Nightingale Awards of Pennsylvania does exist. And, and you know, as I say to the board members, we're the best kept secret in Pennsylvania, right? We got to change that. We got to make we, sure that pe- people know about us. We, yeah. And, and especially now using social media. So hopefully we can get some of the younger nurses turned on. Um, all right. So here's a fun question. Uh And, you know, think about it if you want, but or just blurt out something. But here's the question. Many of our Legends of Nursing uh, conversations have have talked about uh, the Cherry Ames books. That was a series um, of of books written by Helen Wells back, I guess, in the 40s and then subsequently in the 50s and um, after that. So she apparently had 27 books and they were all different roles. So, which Cherry Ames character of these four would you choose to be? A cruise nurse, a department store nurse, a jungle nurse, or a ski nurse? I can't even believe that there's all those four in the series, but of those four, what would you be? So, I'm just going to be true to form and tell you that I would be none of those because I wanted to be an airline stewardess. Oh. And back, back in 1954, 1955, in order to be an international airline stewardess, you had to have an RN behind your name. Wow. I did not know I that. Really? already decided I wanted to be an airline stewardess, <laughs> and I knew I had to be a nurse. But going back to my previous story, but when my grandmother had that episode and the family was not allowed to visit, 
that changed me forever. Uh-huh. And I just, you know what, forget the other nonsense. I'm just going to be a nurse, and I'm going to change that. <laughs> and then when I look back over 57 years, the last 28 of which have been consulting where I've been nothing but on a plane. <laughs> up, down, up, down, up, down. My dream came true. Oh, Jane, that's great. What a great way to look at it. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I love that. I love that you said true to form. I don't want to be any one of them. Bravo to you for, for standing up for what you believe in. Good for you. Um, Jane, I, I love talking with you, as you know, but uh, this has been particularly um, riveting for me to hear about your success in your career and, and all the you know, even the stories, the early stories, what made you, you. So thank you for joining us. And uh, thank you for, for being a legend of nursing. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to both reflect and share. And it's my hope that any prospective nurses or even those who are listening who are nurses and have other members in their family or within their influence that you focus on the rewards that we uniquely get by being a, a change force in yeah. other people's lives. And don't focus so much on the things that get in the way, but look at the difference that you have made. Let that be the story that influences others. Uh, that Jane, that's a great way to end our our podcast this season. So thank you for the words of wisdom. Uh, And again, thank you for your career and for all that you've done for the nurses all over the country and internationally. (laughs) Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. It's been my pleasure and honor. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jane Felgen, one of our five legends of nursing. This was also our final episode for season three. Since it is still May, I would like to wish all of my nursing colleagues and friends a very happy Nurses Month. May you be acknowledged and appreciated for who you are and what you do. We'll be back this fall with season four of the Lighting Your Way podcast. Until then, don't forget to pet all the good doggies and kitties and tell your people that you love them. Have a great summer.